probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me for the last day of the week is... Kyle Pinion, entertainment editor for ComicsBeat.com and editor-in-chief for GeekRex.com. Awesome. Thanks for finishing up the week with us. Yeah, sure, man. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I, I it's, it's been a lot of fun to revisit a movie that I have, like, it's weird. I have like almost had no memory of every time I watch it. It's a movie I enjoy, but it's like it's this sort of thing that's sort of effervescent in my head, which is really does it a disservice, frankly. And it's nice to kind of cut into it to have a new reappreciation for it. Uh, I almost wish I had that kind of reaction so that I could see it, see it with fresh eyes again, because, yeah, this it's one of those movies where, you know, not not knowing the twists and some of the kind of specifics would be is uh, would be really nice sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I, I know the twists. I know what I know what's going to happen, you know, broadly speaking. Yeah. But it's just it's all the connecting tissue has 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 left me over the years. But, uh, you know, I'm not a big horror guy anyway. So it's uh, these aren't the kind of movies that I reach for immediately. So it's just kind of neat to to uh, sort of kind of take these things apart in our discussions here. It's been fun. Cool. So today we're talking about minute 50 of uh, of the thing, which begins with them uh, continuing to pour kerosene into the big pit they're they're building and then. Ends a minute later with uh, Gary asking, where's Blair? Looking for Blair. So the beginning here, I always kind of wonder, is this a real thing that you would do if you were making a fire out on the ice is like use snow to build up the embankments? Like, like I have to like, I guess they're doing it just to keep the kerosene from spilling out before they light it. But it seems to me like when they light the fire, those like kind of embankments that they made should just like melt away instantly. (laughs) Yeah, I, I wonder about that, and I wonder if it's just because the temperature might keep them. Uh, I mean, we're talking like sub-zero temps, right? Yeah. So perhaps like uh, a directed flame like that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to melt away all of that snow, uh, just because the exterior temperature is sort of fortifying it a bit. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that much about physics, but I have to assume uh, that that. I mean, it's movie magic, too. But yeah. um, I have to assume that that's sort of the logic that's being used there. Yeah, and it certainly gives uh, gives somebody else something to do driving the, the ski dozer, too, I guess. <laughs> it yeah, makes it seem right. a little bit more interesting than just a bunch of guys with shovels, probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. A bunch of guys just kind of – like, what is everybody else doing? I mean, you've got uh, you got one guy with a ski dozer, and you've got, uh, you got your guy with the flamethrower, and everybody else is just kind of – stand in there yeah they kind of gloss over the fact that it's somewhere in between the last scene and this one somebody had uh at least one person had to go collect all of the bodies which is a a a pretty creepy thing to have to go do especially after they know now that the two the the body of the dog and the body of the uh of the double face thing are are still alive and just just killed bennings and they're like hey just go grab that real quick (laughs) (laughs) yeah pick up your pal uh gary (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, really. So, yeah, uh, I have to wonder. That's that seems like a, a an interesting cut scene there where they have to go gather these bodies. And, and like they're pretty um, we've talked a lot about how in the autopsy scenes, they are like extremely cavalier about like not worrying about any kind of infection or anything <laughs> like you know, yeah. just, just little nylon gloves, but they've got like blood. Blair and Copper have like blood up to their armpits, and you know, so yeah, you think at, at this point, once I know what's going on, you think these guys would all be wearing like biohazard suits while they collect this stuff to burn. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they, they so cavalierly just burn another human being. So I guess they, uh, they, they the, the idea of uh, infection just doesn't even occur to them. They, they, you know, these guys just jump for, forward without any second thought. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this is another one. We talked yesterday about how there are a lot of kind of stunts in this movie that seem maybe unnecessarily dangerous. Uh, here's a good one where we actually have uh, Kurt Russell wielding a real, not only wielding a real flamethrower, but shooting it into a giant pit of uh, flammable liquid. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. As I was watching that, I was thinking, God, who's actually holding the flamethrower? It can't be Kurt Russell, right? But maybe it is. Yeah, this is uh this is where we get that first very iconic uh look of him where he's got the he's got his leather jacket and the the blue hoodie and the goggles on, the one that we get to see later when he uh starts to hold the, everybody else hostage. It's pre-ice in the beard look, but same same uh same outfit. But yeah, just like, you know, this huge explosion again like something that would never they would never have the actors actually do, especially in a scene like this where you could very easily have had a stand and do this like you can't like you said you can't even really tell that it's Kurt Russell. <laughs> I know, I know. That maybe that's by design though, right? Like I mean, is it possible that a stunt a stunt uh, performer stepped in to actually handle that weaponry uh, and that way it's you're 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 pulled so far back you can't really tell that it's him? I mean, you could th- slap a beard on any guy, right? I would say that, but I think in the in the commentary, John Carpenter talks and Kurt Russell both talk about how this was actually him <laughs> because oh Kurt God. Russell was terrified that he was gonna and Keith David too in the earlier in the dog kennel scene when he he used a real flamethrower. They were both very worried that you know if they dropped it or if they accidentally turned a little bit, then you know they might accidentally you know burn somebody up. <laughs> Man. Well, back to those those lax production and safety standards. Holy cow. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I read somewhere, I can't remember where, but I read somewhere that Kurt Russell, too, kept, uh, because of this, he kept playing pranks where he kept acting like he got burned and he'd, he'd have the makeup people put, like, fake effects on his arms and stuff and go to John Carpenter. Like, oh, we had an accident on the set today. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I was going to bring up, too, I never really noticed until looking at it this closely how gory it looks in that one one little shot uh, as they're pouring the kerosene on. I don't know where it's like a bunch of intestines and like, I don't know, it looks gross. It looks like bile or something. I don't know, but it's not, it doesn't look like anything that we've seen up to this point that they're supposed to be burning. It looks like maybe they just got a bunch of guts and threw them in there to uh, to give some background. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, probably. It's a pretty, pretty gross scene for sure. And it's interesting that they, that, that there's nothing about the biology there that looks alien necessarily it just looks like a just a desecrated human Mm -hmm. maybe you notice like some wriggling bits or pieces that are burnt up that i just missed in your you know multiple views of this thing but i the the biology seems to have almost fully become human at that point yeah no you're right and uh, you know they they do that one close-up after he kind of lights the fire of the uh 
of the it looks like almost like a crash test dummy burning or something it definitely does not look like a real real person like the the one in the last uh minute did but yeah yeah i'm not really sure if that's supposed to be bennings or you know because they're burned i guess they're burning bennings they're burning the uh the dog thing that was like half transformed and then the double face thing that they got from the norwegian camp it's they've, they've thrown it all in here and i don't know which one that's actually supposed to be because obviously bennings should be pretty burned up already you know based on the last last minute so i'm not sure yeah, so right after, uh, as they're all kind of just watching this this burning pit, uh, you know, they're, they, uh, I can't remember who asked, but somebody asked if, uh, if that's everything. And Doc Copper says, you know, that's, that's, and we've got every little bit left of it in that pit. We got it from the storeroom, the medical room, you know, everything's covered. And so it's, again, just another moment where it's like, oh, the threat, the threat is over. And then immediately they're like, hey, where's Blair? <laughs> 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 exactly. I mean, I feel like that we've had scene after scene of somebody get the doc. Where's Blair? Uh, and it, 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 every beat of these past minutes that we've talked about this week, it feels like it's been punctuated about the damn doctor that nobody can find, either through his journal or trying to find him to talk to him about this or to, to wonder where the hell he is. It, it's it's pretty funny, actually. Yeah, when, when you kind of step back and notice how many times that happens, it is kind of ridiculous. But yeah, this is definitely the part of the movie where even when he's off screen, Blair has become a really important part of this story because he's, you know, depending on how you look at it, he's either the only one who knows, you know, how serious the, the threat actually is and that he's maybe contemplating uh, either isolating them or, or maybe even killing them off just so that the alien can't escape or, you know, you, you might theorize that he's already been taken over and that he's already kind of planning his his grand escape too that that we kind of see towards the end of the movie. So uh yeah, there's definitely something going on with him and and yeah, this minute is where like the plot turns towards him in terms of uh what the threat actually is, is which is kind of interesting. So uh there's not a whole lot else that happens in this minute and since we're at the at the end of the week I figured this would be a good time to kind of just talk a little bit more generally about the movie. So you mentioned that, you know, before we watched it uh, together on, on Halloween a couple of years back, it had been a long time since you saw the movie. But do you remember the uh, the first time that you saw the thing? Yeah, I, I mean, sort of. I, I think I was probably if, if, if it was like 25 years ago, I was probably I was probably nine. Um, I definitely saw it with my uncle, who I generally watched most of my old horror with. Sometimes when I was a kid, you know, my parents would uh, let me rent some of these things at Blockbuster Video. Mm -hmm. And usually I would just kind of roll through like the entire Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street franchises because uh, those were movies that my parents liked a lot. They love slasher films. But I, I, I never got had much interest as a kid in like the science fiction side of things. And I remember um, seeing uh, there was a stretch of weekends where I would get to watch these movies not for on video, but I guess because they were playing on t TV, either the, via the sci-fi channel or through like one of these um, sort of late night channels that would just play like whatever horror films uh, just to fill the air. And that's how I ended up seeing Night of the Living Dead for the first time, awesome. uh, which is still, I think, the scariest movie I've ever seen. And then I think I saw The Thing not too long after. And it certainly made an impression on me, but mostly I think because of the scary dog stuff. I think that was uh, that was a, that was that was a trouble spot for me as as a dog lover. 
Uh, <laughs> I grew up in a household with dogs. Uh, you know, when I was staying with my grandparents, they had about four dogs. So uh, and they were all fairly large dogs. So to have uh, like a dog monster happen r- right in front of my eyes, it was definitely uh, a, f- a formative moment. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the I liked the movie fine. I think there were other Carpenter movies I liked more. Certainly Halloween is one of the great, great horror films. And I think of the slasher genre, it's the best by far. And I always, always love Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. Um, but I think maybe it's kind of funny to say I think my favorite uh, Carpenter movie is probably Starman. Um, which is probably like nobody's favorite Car- <laughs> Carpenter film, but I'm a big fan of that, man. And I feel like it was a, sort of a new dramatic sort of a touchstone for him after he had sort of played in, I mean, he always, he's always played in genre, but he's never really been sort of a heart tugging kind of guy. Yeah. And I think that was a, a, a sort of a new spot for him. Plus I just really like Jeff Bridges. So, yeah, that's a movie I've actually never seen. I really need to, to watch it. And, it's uh, it's one that it sounds like was a that movie was kind of made almost as a reaction to the critical response to this movie because you know he he worked so hard on this movie and considered it the best thing he had ever done and, and that it did so poorly and it really affected him the, the critical response was so bad and he, he did Christine was the next movie after this and I think that was probably already in production by the time this movie came out but right after that was Starman in which he you know tried to do something that maybe had a little bit more kind of box office appeal but but still had uh you know some of the some of the science fiction elements that that he's fond of so yeah that's a movie i, I really need to check out I, I i don't know that much about it honestly well i mean if you had a chance to see that um that jeff nichols movie that came out last year oh, uh midnight um midnight special special yeah there's a lot of similarities there. I mean, Starman is a much broader general audience appealing film, whereas Midnight Special is kind of slow and yeah. kind of more meditative. But there's they share some similar DNA. And I think uh, there was a real reason why Jeff Nichols said, this is my John Carpenter movie, because he was trying to make a Starman. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that was directly the kind of movie he was trying to produce. And it and it shows. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't love that movie, but I love Starman. So uh, and, and I mean, Big Trouble is a lot of fun. I mean, that's a great sort of drive in movie. I think it's kind of the quintessential uh, grindhouse film of the 80s. I don't know, man. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine a filmmaker with a better string of movies in genre, at least, than Carpenter. I mean, up to about what they live, I think, was probably like his uh, last truly like like great film or very, very good film or iconic film. Cause you know, once you get into his nineties, I, I don't think I like anything he's made, yeah. but uh, boy, he sure as hell ruled the eighties. Yeah, no kidding. With uh, with the thing and Starman and Christine, Big Trouble, Prince of Darkness, uh, yeah. In the Mouth of Madness. I mean, he just a, a you know one after another. He did some really fantastic movies. Uh, certainly one of my, he was he was one of those guys that I didn't I didn't realize until a few years ago that he was one of my favorite directors. I just never really put the pieces together of, of how many of his movies I like really adore. I've always loved this movie, but it never really occurred to me that just how many of his I were like very very high up on my list. 
I mean, most horror movie directors are hacks, man. I'll be honest with you. And then that's not because there aren't great horror filmmakers, but it's like the guys that get a shot at making like big budget studio stuff tend to not be very good. But in the 80s, I mean, you had this sort of auteurist horror. You brought up Joe Dante not too long ago, Mm -hmm. uh, earlier this week. And that's another example of sort of visionary, like, you know, satirical, really thoughtful terrifying filmmaking <laughs> you know uh, i th- i think it's sort of hard to uh, imagine uh, a, a scenario where we ever get that again i mean we sort of have we have like this 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 team of young filmmakers that have started to, to crop up like robert eggers and uh, uh i can't remember the guy that made they uh, made um, it follows oh, uh, uh, david robert mitchell David Robert Mitchell and, uh, of course, the, the filmmakers behind movies like uh, like The Babadook and uh, – Karen Kusama uh, is another good one, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, wait, wait what's, who's The Babadook? The, the, uh, the it's, Australian – It's Jennifer Greg. something, right? Or, yeah. I can't yeah. remember her last name. Yeah, she's fantastic too. Yeah, and it, it's – and so like there, there's, there's like a, a core Jennifer Kent, of that – Jennifer Kent, sorry. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> there's a core of that that's starting to crop up again. But uh, for the longest time, man, I think we were in a real drought. And, I, you know, it's like it's like Carpenter had some contemporaries like, you know, Wes Craven, who I, I think is actually not very good or uh, any of the I mean, can you, can you actually name any of the directors from the Friday the 13th franchise no. or I mean, God, Clyde, you know, the, like the, the guys that were like Clyde Barker who I think it was kind of a one and done, frankly, uh, but it's still hung on forever and ever and ever. We just, Sam Raimi and uh, Joe Dante and and John Carpenter were really one of a kind and, or, you know, three of a kind. <laughs> and we just got so little of that past that 1980s prime. The 90s were full of just bad, bad horror films. And the 2000s, they got even worse until just recently. Yeah, I would agree. And, uh, you know, I I hadn't really thought about it, but I think you make a good point that for most a lot of genre directors um, and maybe even horror in particular, there's a lot of a lot of my favorite horror movies are by directors who never went on to do another good movie. (laughs) Like, uh, you know, The the Descent is a good example that Neil Marshall did. And I have not liked anything he's done since then outside of the episodes of Game of Thrones that he's done. Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, even you know, you could even look at something around this era like like Alien that Ridley Scott did. And and obviously Blade Runner right after that was uh, was that came out the same same day as uh, the thing, uh, actually, you know, is obviously a masterpiece uh, in in a different genre than than Alien, probably. But but, you know, he's never really reached back to that either. Like even even the two Alien movies he's done recently didn't come anywhere close to reaching the, the kind of masterpiece that alien is so i don't know what it is about it but i think you're right there's only a handful of guys who uh who were able to kind of you know be prolific in this kind of genre and john carpenter's of of that group he's probably the most prolific i mean he's got a a huge list of imdb uh credits and and now you know even though he hasn't directed a movie in in quite a while now is is a pretty successful you know touring musician at this point which is yeah it's pretty awesome (laughs) for a guy his age um yeah I, I I didn't realize his drought was so big, but holy crap! I mean, uh, between Ghosts of Mars and this, I've never seen the Ward. I don't yeah, know I haven't that seen is. it either yet. Um, but like, uh, and now nothing. I mean, seven years later, he's hasn't made another thing. So it's it's uh, that's it's surprising for someone who was so iconic for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, certainly one of the most influential American directors. Um, 
you know, just like like you mentioned, how, uh, you know, it was a big influence for Midnight Special. And then obviously uh, we've talked on this podcast about how Hateful Eight is, is pretty heavily influenced by this movie in particular. And yeah, I, I, I mentioned it in a really early episode, I think, but this uh, great book called Shock Value that's all about kind of the rebirth of horror in the in the late 70s, early 80s, and and how Carpenter and the, the people that he interacted with at uh, at USC, you know, he was a major player. And even, even before he really started his career, he had a lot of influence on other people like Dan O'Bannon and uh, Wes Craven and those guys who all kind of mingled together and ended up going their own routes to to be big players in the 80s horror field too. So yeah, certainly an important figure in in film history. Did you ever see Dark Star? I have. You know, it's funny that you ask. I saw it at DragonCon last year. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Did, did you like it? I loved it. It's uh, yeah, yeah, it's such a funny, bizarre movie. I, it's yeah, that uh, especially watching it, knowing Dan O'Bannon is the main character is is kind of hysterical to me. It's um, it's pretty awesome. I love Dark Star. Yeah, Dan O'Bannon is pretty, pretty, pretty brilliant writer, uh, and or was a pretty brilliant writer. Mm-hmm. I um, I mean. Uh, I, to some extent, he was kind of like the scripter of the eighties. I mean, with like return of the living dead and all yeah. that. So I'm quite the fan as well. So that, that's, that's a funny confluence of, of things. It, it, it reminds me of like how the evil Dead. I feel like I can't remember the trivia here, but I think like Joel Cohen was like an editor on that film yeah, or I something. Think so. Yeah, so it's just it's just kind of neat to see these guys kind of kind of split apart and kind of grow out of one solid nucleus. You know, these different filmmakers that uh, have produced some pretty tremendous pieces of work. Yeah, it was certainly an interesting time to, to be around in the film industry. It would have been uh, would have been interesting to be working in that era for sure and be be around all these guys uh, coming up with some awesome stuff. Golden age of genre filmmaking, man, by far. Most definitely. So um, I think that'll probably wrap us up for the week. Thanks for, for being on for the whole week, man. It's been really fun. Yeah, man. I appreciate you having me. It uh, it, it, it was pre- pretty cool to talk about something I've never talked about before. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So yeah, listeners, uh, if you enjoyed this week, definitely uh, check out uh, Geek Rex. We've got about... At this uh, at the time of this recording, we've got about 145 episodes in of just, you know, talking about movies that, uh, you know, superhero movies and horror movies and genre stuff. And uh, yeah, one, one you might be in. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but uh, one if you're listening to this show that you might be interested in. We did a really great show last October on the um, the top uh, top horror movies uh, since 2000. That was a lot of fun. We had a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of our friends and and uh, and you know, well-wishers, I guess, take a, take a survey and, and, uh, put together their, their top movies. And then we kind of went through them on the podcast. That was a good time. And, and we're looking to do that, uh, upcoming with a, a, a survey on superhero movies. So keep an eye out for that in the uh, near future as well. Yeah. So I think that'll wrap this week up, but if you do like the show and want to support it, uh, you can go to the thing slash Amazon and click on the link there and it'll take you uh, take you to Amazon just like you normally would go to, but uh, a small percentage of whatever you purchase goes to us at no extra cost to you. You can also donate directly to the show using the donate button on the site. Every little bit anybody donates definitely helps uh, helps cover the costs of, of running a daily podcast. So we definitely appreciate that. I hope everybody listening has a great weekend. And if you're still human by Monday, make sure to come back for another episode of The Thing Minutes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. 
But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com, and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out. Thank you.